Thank you, Pastor Gabe, and welcome. Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, or wherever you are um, listening to this, and whenever you're listening to this, welcome. I'm glad that you are taking the time out of your day, out of your schedule, to join us, and I hope that you're going to be uh, built up and encouraged by hearing a word from God this morning. Um, So many things are going on in our lives right now. Everything just seems to be upside down. There seems to be nothing that's the same as it was today as it was yesterday. I don't know about you, but I'm getting news fatigued. I look at the news and it lays out clear directions. Here's the guidelines for when we're reopening or what you can do or when you can and what you can't do. And then that changes tomorrow. And this person says this, and this person says something else. Things are changing so rapidly, it seems like there's nothing at all that you can count on. It seems like, like your, your boat is just constantly being rocked in this storm, and there's nothing that you can anchor it to. So I think it's more important than ever that we focus and we look and we hold on to the Word of God that we study it so that we really know it. It's enough to just read it and maybe have somebody teach you this is the idea or the concept, but really understanding what the Word of God says, why it says it the way it says it in some cases, and really to have an understanding of how to understand what the Word of God really says. I think those are the things that we can build on. That can be our foundation and our unchanging rock in times like this. So last weekend, we kicked off this new series. This new series is called Trey Asar the Twelve. You might see it on the graphic here, top left, if you can read that on the camera. Trey Asar the Twelve. Trey Asar just simply means the Twelve. It's a Hebrew word that means the Twelve. Now, you'd be tempted to think that that means the Twelve Apostles. That's typically what we think of as Christians when we think of the Twelve. But this is the 12 prophets. It's a specific group of 12 prophets. And we're studying them specifically for a couple reasons. Number one, we need a clear path forward. In times like this, we need to know the path laid out for us and how to navigate certain things that we, many of us in our lifetime, have never had to navigate anything like this before. And we need to have a path. Fortunately, God is not caught by surprise by this. He knows what we need and when we need it. And so throughout the history of mankind, God has sent his word to his people and made that touch them in a way that gave them exactly what they needed at the time. Now, whether they heeded those words, heeded those warnings, and lived by them, that's an entirely different thing. But God is always faithful, and he has always made that path ahead for us clear and the best path for us. This is why we're teaching this. So the 12, the 12 is a group of 12 minor prophets, the Bible calls them. Many of us call them minor prophets. They're minor only in terms of the length of their writing. Some of the prophets, like say Isaiah, for example, very, very well known, um, very, very uh, prolific in his writing. The book of Isaiah is a wealth of information, a wealth of God's teaching and God's prophetic words for his people. It's very, very long. No less important than that, though, are these group of 12, these 12 minor prophets, if you will, whose words were equally as important. 
Equally, God has spoken, God inspired, but much more laser focused and to the point. So rather than the big broadsword that sometimes Isaiah would cut with, these are more like a scalpel. Exactly, with surgical precision and with a brevity of words, relaying God's word, sometimes correction, sometimes hope for his people. So as we look at these 12 books, these 12 books are not often taught. (coughs) Excuse me. They're not often taught as thoroughly, that is, as some of the major prophets or some of the other books of, of the Bible. And that's a shame because they have such incredible topics. Here are some of the themes of these 12 books, the 12, the Treasar, the Minor Prophets. Here's some of the themes that are found in their writings. God's passionate love for his people. Natural disasters during a time of prosperity. That's very specific and very appropriate for us today. Social justice issues. Spiritual poverty. Hypocrisy. The importance of obedience to God's word. Hope during times of adversity. Um, Doubt and faith struggles. All the way back then, people were struggling with their faith and doubting the words of God. And that's okay. And we're taught on how to navigate those. Perseverance when you're tired and you don't feel like persevering. Who here is getting tired of persevering every day? I know I am, and the word gives us guidance on how to handle that, how to navigate that. And then the last idea of these here is just simply giving God our best and why he deserves our very best. So as we come out of this season, things are changing. We need to look at words like this. Now, I don't believe that everything that's going on around us is necessarily a herald of the end times. I think the Bible's clear that we are living in those end of days, but the timing of it is we'll never know. Scripture specifically tells us that we won't know when that comes. So although I believe we are in those days, I don't believe there's anything special about the time we're going through in terms of its relevance to the end time. So many other things have to happen for that to be the case, but I do know this. God uses times like this and things like this to refocus our attention, to correct us when necessary, to get us back on the path. And I've experienced much of that. I don't know if you have as much as I have, but things that I thought was important are not as important now. Things that I didn't place any emphasis on, I'm realizing I should have. And so this is where we are. We're looking for this correction. Now, this idea of correction, from the very beginning, God has been trying to correct our path. He has sent his word. He has sent his prophets to us to try and keep us on that path. Now, of course, once Christ came and we received the Holy Spirit, that word is written on our hearts. But until then, until then, the prophets primarily, were tasked with issuing God's corrective word to his people. One of, these, one of these 12, a prophet named Amos. And Amos 3, verse 7 says this, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Illustrating the importance. God does nothing unless he reveals it to his prophets. 
Therefore, I think it's important that we study what these prophets have to say. Now, he sent them again. These prophets came at strategic times for a specific purpose, typically for a specific people or people group. Sometimes it was individuals. Sometimes it was a nation. More often, it was a corporate word for a larger group of people. And he sent them at very specific times with very specific messages. And so this is what we're looking at. These minor prophets, the 12, the Trey Asar, is what we're studying now. If you missed our introduction, which was last week, go back and check it out. Whatever platform you're looking at uh, this video on now, you can go back and see the introduction to the 12, which was from last week. kind of lays out the groundwork of how this goes and what they're known for. I urge you to go back and check that out at some point. But let's get started this week. This week, we're going into the very first of the 12. We're doing this chronologically, not necessarily how they're laid out in your Bible. So the very first one, we're going to get going. Now, if I told you, if I gave you some, some headlines, such as sibling rivalry, betrayal, pride, treachery, would you think I'm talking about the Bible, or would you think it's the latest Netflix series that we're all binging right now? You'd probably be correct if you thought both of them. Specifically here, I'm talking about the book of Ovadia. Okay, you might see it, or we've always pronounced it as Obadiah. I have. It's kind of the American way to say it. The Hebrew pronunciation is Ovadia. And I'm going to try and use that for the rest of this message so I can get in the habit. I hope you follow along with me and we do that too. Here's the other thing I want to ask for, a little bit of grace. I'm throwing out all kinds of different names and things, and sometimes I'll mix up a name or two. I'll try and correct when I, when I can and be as accurate as I can be. I completely set aside teaching on the 12 tribes of Israel for a part of this because there's no way I can keep all those names straight. So bear with me. If I mix it up, I'll try and get it right. Let's look at the book of Ovadia. Our first one, it actually happens to be the shortest of all the books in the Old Testament. It's only one chapter. One chapter long, the book of Ovadia. So before we go into that, let's actually talk about who Ovadia was. We don't know an awful lot about him, right? We don't, certainly don't teach about the person of Ovadia, usually in church, if we talk about his scriptures and his prophecies at all. Usually don't talk much about the person. Why? There's a couple reasons for that. One is the Bible doesn't talk about much about who he is. The name Ovadia is mentioned a couple places in the word, but we don't have any concrete direction that ties him into one of the other places or, or times. What we do have, though, is we have outside sources that we look to, reliable outside sources, not Google or Wikipedia. We look at things like Roman historians of the day, like Josephus. We get a lot of our information from Josephus about the things that happened. We can tie that then into the words in Scripture and fill in some of the gaps and blanks so that we can piece this path together. A lot of this information comes from the Talmud. Now, the Talmud is it's not the Jewish Bible, as some people, that's called the Tanakh. The Jewish Bible, the, he, the Talmud is a companion, if you will, a companion book. God, I know I'm vastly oversimplifying it but a companion book to the Hebrew Bible. It elaborates on some subjects and topics in ways that the Holy Scripture does not. 
And through that, though, we were able to get some more pieces of the puzzle and piece together the life and the times and who Ovadia was. So moving forward, here we go. Who was Ovadia? Ovadia was a prophet who ministered to or gave, delivered his words of prophecy to the nation of Edom. And he did that at about 850 to 840 B.C., give or take, okay? The word Ovadia means, literally means, servant of God. Now, in Arabic, Ovadia translates as Abdullah. Is that important theologically? No, just something to throw out for knowledge. So, servant of God, Ovadia. Now, Ovadia was an Edomite. So we see the word ite put after, or the suffix put after a lot of na- nation names. Israelite, Edomite. We see these put, and that just simply indicates the area that you're from, or sometimes the tribe that you're from. We'll talk more about that later. Ovadia was an Edomite who converted, or more accurately, his family parents converted to Judaism. We know this through documentation in the, in the Talmud. He once, though, his, where he kind of rose to prominence at all was as a servant. Okay, a servant. The title officially was steward. What that is is second in command of a household. So basically, the, the, those of you who watch Downton Abbey, he'd be the chief butler, right? You're kind of in charge of the house underneath the owner. He was steward in a palace, So a very high position at that point, but a very special palace. This was the palace that belonged to Ahab and Jezebel. Any of you remember the story of Ahab and Jezebel? So he was the steward in the palace of Ahab and Jezebel. We know Ahab and Jezebel is is a whole another story, an even larger story, but let me give you the short version of it here. Ahab was an Israelite king, okay, who married a woman, Jezebel, who was not an Israelite. In fact, she was a worshiper of Baal, and she exerted a lot of influence on Ahab, so much so that Ahab really couldn't say no to her. He couldn't say no. He pretty much let her have her run of things. That is another message for another story. If you want to read about their, their story, 1 Kings uh, chapter 16 through 18 will kind of give you the rundown on Ahab and Jezebel. Point is here, the, for us, Jezebel was afraid of the influence that the local religious community was going to have on her husband. Her husband Ahab. Remember, she was trying to, to trying to really exert her authority and basically take over that palace and exert her influence. And anything that threatened that influence with Ahab, she had a problem with. And so specifically, there was a group, a school, if you will, a school in the area of prophets. And those prophets, there are about a hundred of them, scripture teaches us, that were being taught by a very specific teacher, and his name was Samuel. Yes, that Samuel from the book of Samuel. He had his own school of prophecy, if you will, and he was helping these 100 prophets grow in their knowledge and relationship of the Lord. Now, it wasn't capital P prophets where they were learning how to give prophecy. It was they were more servants, again, of the Lord, and they were learning how to do that. However, Jezebel 
did not like the fact that they were exerting influence on the community and by doing that then on Ahab. She wanted to kill them. She wanted to take them all out, all hundred of them, and just murder them. The problem is Ahab didn't really want that to happen, but he wouldn't cross his wife. So what he needed was somebody to help out, and that somebody stepped forward in the person of Ovadia. Ovadia came forward, and, and in fact, he's the one that approached Ahab, said, I want to take these men, these prophets, and I'm going to hide them. And I need your help and your permission to do it. So he did that under Ahab's permission, although not overtly or openly. And he took these 100 prophets and he hid them in caves. He hid them in caves to keep them out of, out of the, the, the eyes of Jezebel and keep them safe. We know that he would deliver them food and water and basically care for them as they hid out in these caves. It was in defiance of the direct king's orders, but with his tacit approval of that. Now, he, meanwhile, in the midst of all this, a prophet, one of our major prophets, his name is Elijah. Now, Elijah was kind of a big deal. Everybody knew who Elijah was. Everybody in the region, Elijah was a major prophet. He was a big deal. He carried some weight and authority, even with those who didn't directly know him. They knew of him, and they knew who he was, and he was already issuing these prophecies against the things that Ahab and Jezebel were doing. And this, of course, was a major thorn in the side of Ahab and Jezebel, okay? So much so that Ahab was doing everything that he could to find Elijah with the idea he was just going to kill him. Just make him disappear. Make that problem go away. This is what he wanted to do. And he was sending out spies and people to try and find him. So fast forward now. Ovadia, our faithful servant here, is actually hiding some cattle. He's taking some cattle and he's hiding them in places to, one, keep them safe from Jezebel, but the other thing is to use them to feed these prophets who were being hidden. And he's on his way, Scripture says, hiding them when he bumps in to a certain prophet on the road. 1 Kings 18, verse 7 says this, Now, as Ovadia was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is this you, Elijah, my master? Remember, Elijah big deal, right? Hebrew scripture calls him Elias. So if you see Elias, Elias and Elijah, same guy. Now, Ahab again has been searching for this guy. Ovadia, a servant in his household, knows this. He bumps into Elijah on the road and her, his first thought is, oh my gosh, my boss, my master wants to kill you. And so he wants, he wants to meet him and talk to him and interact with him and learn from him, but he also knows this troublemaker, if my boss finds out I'm talking to him or dealing with him, I'm going to be in trouble. Over, uh, Elijah now, though, says to Ovadia, I want you to go tell Ahab that I'm coming and I've got a word for him. Well, Ovadia is terrified by this. 1 Kings 18.12 says, Ovadia fears, it doesn't say this, I'm paraphrasing, Ovadia fears that here's what's going to happen. He says, I'm going to go tell 
Ahab that you're coming, that you're here and you're coming for him. But then when he comes to find you, you're just going to disappear on wings of angels and you'll vanish and go somewhere else. And I'm going to look like an idiot. And I'll probably get killed. He's terrified of this. I go tell my boss, you're here. comes back, you're gone. Having been whisked away, I'm going to look stupid. He's afraid of doing this, but he does it. He is faithful, and he does go tell. 1 Kings 18, 16. So Ovadia went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet with Elijah. Now, from this point, there is a giant story that goes on on what that interaction between Elijah and Ahab and all that was. We're not going to touch that now. Too much to talk about. We're going to move on with, with what our focus is, and that's Ovadia. Okay, so Ovadia does this. Fast forward a few years from that point. We're not sure of the exact timeline, but it's a little ways. Ahab is still trying to kill Elijah, still trying to kill him. In fact, he's forming these little, these little groups called detachments of about 50 or so soldiers, sending them out to search for Elijah. Now, he gets word that Elijah is in this one particular place, so he sends two detachments, two groups of 50, to go capture and kill Elijah. Okay, one detachment we know is led by this man, this servant named Ovadia, who's not only a servant of the household, but is now chief of this detachment. They go, they find Elijah, they confront Elijah, and what does Elijah do but call down the power of God on them and burns them all to a crisp? All but one, Ovadia. Ovadia alone survives this. In fact, as a result of that, he denounces his position with Ahab and becomes a follower of Elijah, a disciple, if you will, of Elijah. And because of his faithfulness to Elijah, God rewards him with the gift of prophecy. So Ovadia then becomes a prophet in his own right. And his very first assignment is to minister to Edom. So that's who Ovadia is. Ovadia is a long line of the Lord taking these seemingly insignificant men and women and elevating them to a place of honor in order to use them, simply through their faithfulness. So here's where we are. So Ovadia is sent to deliver God's word to the nation of Edom. Now, who remembers the significance of Edom? Anybody remember that? Let's show you a map really quick. Here's a map of the region. Hopefully that translates fairly well on your screen. This is Israel, Judah, and neighboring nations. At about, top left it says CA, so that means circa, which just means about 800 B.C., So we see the kingdom of Israel in green, okay? Below that, the kingdom of Judah. This is the divided kingdom time. Kingdom of Judah, of which the capital is Jerusalem. I don't know if you can read that or not, but Jerusalem is up near the top of the kingdom of Judah. And then below, for our purposes, it's important, the kingdom of Edom right through here. Small dot down in the corner, that is the capital of the kingdom of Edom, and it's a place called Petra talk more about that in a minute. What's important to know, though, is that the Edomites are descendants of Esau. Edomites are descendants of Esau. Where do we remember Esau from? 
All the way back, Genesis 25, you can read that story. Esau and Jacob were sons of Isaac, okay? We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Esau and Jacob were sons of Isaac. Now, you read Genesis 25 for that whole entire story. Esau was the firstborn son. And from Esau and from Jacob formed the 12 tribes of Israel, them and their descendants. Another message for another day again. But Esau, as we know from Scripture, again, if you read Genesis 25, Esau was tricked into selling his birthright. As firstborn, he was entitled to that birthright as firstborn, but he was tricked into giving up that birthright all in exchange because he was hungry for a bowl of soup. says that, Genesis 25, uh, I'm sorry, we'll go to this later. Tricked into doing that. Now, Edom, the word Edom comes from the word red, which is they think it was a red stew. So they started calling him Edom, and that's where the nation of Edom actually comes from. So Edom, Esau, same person, then becomes a nation down the road. But tricked into that by his brother Jacob. And this rivalry, this starting of this sibling rivalry, right, was nothing new. In fact, that had been a problem between the two of them from the very beginning. Their mother, Rebecca, when the two children, twins, were in her womb, she knew that there was going to be a problem. In fact, Scripture talks about it, Genesis 25, 22. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She's being told that these children are going to be a blessing. Next verse, Genesis 25, 23, says, The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Remember, the older, the one with the birthright, was Esau. But he gave it up. Gave it up to his brother Jacob. And there was constant struggle and strife back and forth for the rest of, the rest of their history. Jacob's lineage and sons form Israel and Judah, okay? Esau's sons and lineage form Edom, okay? So brother kingdoms, brother lines going all the way back then to Esau and Jacob, but constantly at odds with each other, okay? Sibling rivalry, not so much enemies, but just some sibling rivalry and these squabbles that just happen continually. Throughout the centuries to come, we see these nations coexist, but sometimes fighting together against a common foe, sometimes against each other, sometimes ganging up with other nations to fight each other, and it's just a constant struggle between them. All the while, though, and it's important for our message, still brothers. Still brothers. Here's an example of how this played out. We go back to Moses and the Israelites fleeing Egypt. Remember, fleeing Pharaoh. They're being chased. Fleeing. And they want to, the shortest path to where they want to go is to go right through this area, this kingdom called Edom. And here's what we see from, Mo, uh, from Numbers chapter 20, verses 17, 18. Moses says, please let us pass through your land. 
We will not cut through any field or vineyard, nor drink water from any well. We will stay on the king's highway. We will not turn to the right or to the left until we've passed through your territory. They're saying, please, let us just, we'll stay on the road. We won't eat anything. We won't damage anything. We're just, we're just passing through. Let us. Verse 18, but Edom answered, you may not travel through our land or we will come out and confront you with the sword. They know they're being chased, and all they had to do to let them have access and safety, relative safety, was to just let them walk through their yard. But they refused to do that. And you would think that the Israelites at this time would be extremely justified in saying, okay, Edom, you and your people are now on our enemy list. But God reminds them of who they are. Deuteronomy 27, uh, 23, Deuteronomy 23, verses 7 and 8. We have that one on screen. You shall not, you know, this is God reminding the Israelites of this. You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. And you shall not detest an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. The sons of the third generation who are born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. The Lord is saying, hey, don't blame the Egyptians for what they did. You were in their land, remember? And don't blame the Edomites either because when this is all said and done, they and their descendants will be allowed into the assembly, reminding them that they are all brothers. The only problem is the Edomites didn't get the memo. They did not get the message. They acted Again, continue to act every bit like the rebellious brother, refusing to behave like a brother. Too small to be on their own. Scripture tells us they're going to be the smaller of the two. Too small to do all these things on their own. They develop these pattern of partnering with neighboring enemies, such as Moab and different things, in order pretty much just enemies of convenience. When they would come in, they would jump into whatever cause was being happened, as long as it benefited them, so they didn't care who they partnered with as long as they found it to their benefit. And this is a pattern over and over again, going all the way back to when they were first conquered under David and Solomon. You can read about that in in Samuel and Kings. They joined Moab and Ammon, again, neighboring countries, to attack Judah. They lost that one. Later, at about 840, or about the time Ovadia was prophesying here, they rebelled against King Jehoram of Judah. They won that battle. Then they were reconquered by King Amaziah. They lost, obviously. Then they attacked Judah and King Ahaz, who only way to describe him is just he, he's a really bad dude. King Ahaz, he had it coming. And he lost in that case. Now, later on, later on, we would find the Edomites and the Israelites, specifically Judah, fighting against a common enemy in Rome. We'll talk more about that in just a little bit. Side note, we talk about how God weaves all these things together and throughout history, how there's always a reason for animosity that we find. We look at King Herod. King Herod, not Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, who was, who was king at the time of Jesus. Okay, we look at him. He was an Edomite by heritage. His heritage, his family line was that of Edom. He was raised as a Jew, and then he found himself elevated to a position of being 
being king during the time of Jesus. And we know the role he played, or if we don't, we can talk about it another time, the role that he played in the persecution of Christians in the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, that's Herod. Do you remember another name for Jesus? Who else is Jesus known as? The Lion of Judah. So here we have an Edomite by heritage being the antagonist to the Lion of Judah. Coincidence? Pastor Craig and all of our youth would say, I think not. Let's move on. Much later, much, much later, about 240 years later, the Edomites would actually play a very major role in the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar invading and destroying Jerusalem. And Obadiah's warning, Ovadia, see, I did it myself. Ovadia's warning to them should have been more than enough, but sometimes in a space of time, we forget. And this is what happened. If they were ever prone to listen to begin with, they'd certainly forgotten it by then. Now, side note again, Ovadia is one of only three books in the entire Bible of prophecy, at least, that prophesies against another nation, not their own. In other words, Ovadia is prophesying to Edom, and that's not his nation, his current nation. It's important to remember, though, that he did have some credibility with them. You would think, why would, they, why would this rebellious nation of Edom even listen to or pay attention to this prophet coming in from somewhere else? Why do we even care? couple reasons, and these are things that are God-ordained. Number one is that Ovadia, remember, was an Edomite by birth, by heritage, right? What didn't live there, didn't really even claim that as his home nation, but he was an Edomite by heritage. Here's another thing, though. He had some street cred of his own because he was a disciple of Elijah. And remember, everybody knew Elijah. Elijah was a big deal. But So he had that credibility of being a disciple of Elijah and then being an Edomite by birth, gave him a unique opportunity then to speak to the nation of Edom. Read the whole book on your own. We're going to go through some key scriptures. Read the whole book on your own if you want. It's very short. As I said, it's one chapter to get the whole lay down. We're going to go through some key scriptures here. We're going to go kind of fast, so hold on, buckle up. Ovadia 1.1. Starts out like this The vision of Ovadia. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. The Bible's not really clear on who this we is, but we do know that word of Edom's treachery and her betrayal and her deceit has started to get around. It has started to get around, and the nations are being roused to go against her. Ovadia 1-2, we have that one on screen. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. This goes all the way back to what was spoken to, to Esau, that he will be the smaller. And we, we know that the name of Edom has since then become just synonymous with, with treachery. Ovadia 1.3, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? He's telling there, you think that because of where you live, you're safe. And you're saying, who's going to come get us? 
This is what we're talking about here in just a second. Ovadia 1.4, though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. You don't ever want to hear the Lord saying something like that to you. But here's what that means, this, this picture of, of building high in places of safety and clefts of the rock and eagle's nest. What they're talking about is where the capital of Edom is. The capital of Edom, the Hebrews call it Sela, S-E-L-A. In Greek, it translates as Petra. So the capital of Edom is this place called Petra. Both of those words just mean rock, by the way. It's about 50 miles or so south of the Dead Sea. It's in modern-day Jordan now is where you'll find that. We have some images of Petra. Let me show you some images you may have seen. Hopefully they translate. If you can see this, any Indiana Jones fans out there? See the building in the back? That is the treasury building in Petra, literally carved into the sandstone. Okay, next one we have. This is just a little bit of a, of a closer look of it. That is one of many buildings literally just carved into the stone, okay? Pretty hard to attack a building like that. Next one. This is the same building just farther away. I know it's a terrible image, but you can see the scale, the camels down in front. That is huge. Now, next one. There we go. That's one more building, and you can see the scale with the people down below. And many, many. These are just a couple of, of the buildings there in Petra. All right, you can... You can drop those down. Now, if any of you have been to Lake Powell out there, you know those sandstone canyons get very, very narrow. Going into and out of this area of Petra, you had to travel through some of those very narrow sandstone canyons. Made it, from our standpoint, virtually impenetrable, right? You would think that that was all that you needed to be safe from invading armies. And so they developed this mindset, we don't need anybody else to defend us, okay? What we'll do is we'll jump in on what they're doing to go plunder other people, but we don't need any defense of our own. We've got this. We have our very place that we live keeps us safe, keeps us untouchable. They didn't think they needed to rely on anybody else. God knows different. Just when we start relying on those things that we have built around us to keep us safe, God has a way of reminding us that that alone is not going to be our safety. Ovadia 1.7, moving on. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Now, let me explain this really quick. This is saying all those people all those nations who you've called your friends of opportunity and you've worked with them in the past, God is now going to turn them on you and use them to destroy you. That last phrase, there's no understanding in him. Different translations put it different ways. But what it means is even they won't realize what they're doing, but God has a plan and they will be doing his will, whether they know it or not. Ovadia 1.9, then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Taman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Now, the reason I bring that up is just because of O Taman. Taman is a region. It's a region in the northern part of Edom, kind of on the border between Edom and Judah, 
um, sort of. Now, Scripture doesn't say this. I believe, though, that from my study, this may be the region that the Israelites that we're about to talk about here in a minute, where they actually flee through as they're trying to escape Jerusalem. Now, why are they escaping Jerusalem? <coughs> Let's talk about this a little bit. Ovadia 1, 10 to 11, that one we have. Because of violence to your brother Jacob. Now, remember, this isn't Jacob physically. This is the nation, okay? You will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Now what he's referring to here is Philistines had invaded Jerusalem and were plundering Jerusalem. They were raping and pillaging and, and being absolutely terrible. And Judah was reaching out for help. Their brother Judah, the nation of Judah, was reaching out for help, and Edom simply stood by, did not help. Now, they're warned, because here is the next verse, Ovadia 1.12. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. And I know you've had your problems, but you better not be too happy about the things that are happening to them. Now, how bad exactly was Edom's treachery? Listen to this scripture. Ovadia 1.14. Got it on screen. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. Remember, the nation of Edom, they weren't active participants in the ransacking of Jerusalem here. In fact, they were just standing by and letting the Philistines do it. But in order to gain the favor of the Philistines, to say, hey, see, we're, we're on your side, they stood at the border between Judah and Edom. And as refugees were escaping this, this terrible um, massacre and, and battle that was going on, we're not talking soldiers, We're talking women and children and those who weren't actively involved in the fight. As they fled south along the king's highway that led through their territory, they waited at the border. And as the refugees came across the border, they would cut them down. They would cut them down. They would throw them in jail, all in an effort persecuting their brothers who were fleeing, looking for safety and shelter, persecuting them just to try and gain favor with the Philistines. There will be a price for them to pay. And this is what Ovadia is warning about. Ovadia 115, for the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Harsh words, yes, but they've earned it. Ovadia 118, then the house of Jacob will be as fire and the house of Joseph a flame. Remember, when it talks about a house, it's talking about that lineage going all the way back to the patriarchs and coming all the way forward. And now a house, in some cases here, is a nation. So this is what he's talking about. Then the house of Jacob will be as fire and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau will be as stubble. In other words, to feed the flame. And they will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor in the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. 
this prophecy finally comes to fruition at about 70 AD, so quite a while later, when Edom is actually in the process of helping Israel in a rebellion against the Romans. Okay? You call it a rebellion, some call it a war, an uprising. It's a fight. The people of, of Israel are now fighting against their captors. Remember, we have a united kingdom at this time, and they're fighting against the Roman government. The Romans are much, much stronger. And at this point, we see Edom actually jumping in and helping their brother. Ultimately, of course, much, much stronger forces. Rome destroys uh, the resistance and completely destroys the nation of Edom. In fact, we never hear about the nation of Edom again. Rome ultimately destroys them. Josephus, the Roman historian, documents that about a million Jews were killed. About a million were killed. Now, 70,000 were actually enslaved and taken to Rome. Any of you ever been to Rome or seen the Colosseum, the Roman Colosseum? These Jews, these 70,000 Jews that were captured during this rebellion were taken to Rome, and they are the force that was used to build the Roman Colosseum. Edom from a nation, as a nation is just never heard from again. And the prophecy of Ovadia closes then with this promise. Ovadia 121, the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now, this, this mighty fortress of Petra, this fortress city, is never heard from again until we see a twist in this. Revelation 12, 14. If you missed my series on Revelation, go through that. Revelation chapter 12, verse 14 is talking about, the, it's all imagery. This woman with the wings of an eagle, okay, represents the remnants of the nation of Israel being taken away to a wilderness place, to safety, while the tribulation occurs. This woman with the eagle's wings, again representing this Jewish remnant, goes into the wilderness, and this wilderness is Petra, this fortress area of Petra to keep them safe. In other words, this fortress of of treachery and idolatry becomes a refuge for God's children. It's exactly how the Lord works things in his kingdom. Now, conclusions to draw from this. Here they are. I pray that the Lord has spoken to you and given your own rhema words through this, but let me give you the four basic conclusions that I have. Number one, God will not stand by and let his people suffer harm without justice being done. God will provide that justice. We don't have to provide it for ourselves or worry that somehow we're being done wrong and who is ever going to make this just for us? God will do that for us. Number two, pride in the wrong things often leads to us choosing the wrong side. Or just as importantly, where do we put our trust? Do we put our trust in this fortress that we've created around us, this fortress of of bank account, or our house, or the things that we have, the things that we rely on? Is that where we're putting our trust and our hope? Or are we putting it where it belongs? Number three, your brother will always be your brother. 
whether you're button heads or fighting. Now, brother here in the figurative sense, whether you're button heads or not, you are brothers. And we need to remember that. Number four, the very things that our enemy thought would be a weapon against us, God will always use for his purposes. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. We're going to, as I close this out, I have a scripture that I want to pray over you. First, we're going to take communion together. If you have communion elements at home, grab them. Um, We are going to celebrate communion together. Scripture says we should do this every time we gather together. The elements that you use, the particular things that you use are not important, but we're going to celebrate that together. All right, hopefully at home you've had time to get your elements. When Jesus gathered the 12 together, he took some bread. They had no idea what they were participating in at the time, but like everything Jesus taught or did, there was a message for it. They didn't understand the depth of it. But what he told them is, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat. And then in the same way, he took some wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. He identified it as the covenant of the Lord. He said, take it and drink. God's promises, God's covenant is evident with us all the way through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even before. We can rely on the promises of God, promises that he will be our deliverer in times of trouble if we simply focus on him and trust in him. And so this is the prayer that I want to leave you with. It's our last scripture. It's Isaiah 54, verse 17. I want to read it to you, and then I want to pray it over you. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. If you are a servant of the Lord, if you declare Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that promise is for you. He will bring justice to all of our situations. Anything the enemy intends for evil, he will turn against him for our good. No weapon formed against us can stand. So rather than to keep our eye on the battle around us, let's keep our eye on the author and the perfecter of our faith. So, Father God, I just thank you, Lord. I thank you for sending Jesus to us so that we have access to all of these promises. We are made right. We are declared righteous in your sight through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And, Lord, we thank you for that. Through that work, through the work of Jesus, nothing we could do, but through his work, all these promises, everything in the Holy Scripture becomes Yes and amen for us. And we can stand on that rock. So no matter how, no matter how uncertain things look in our lives, we can count on you. So Father, help us. In the midst of a storm, help us focus our eyes on Jesus. In the midst of a trial, help us focus 
on Jesus. Let us not get caught up in the turmoil around us, but keep our hope where it belongs. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Hear the voice of love that's called. There's a chair that waits for you. And a friend who understands everything you're going through. But you keep standing at a distance. shadow of your shame But there's a light of hope that's shining Won't you come and take your place? Sing this out with me So bring it all to the table It's nothing he ain't seen before for all your sin, all your sorrow, and your sadness, there's a Savior and He calls. Bring it all to the table. He can see the weight you carry, the fears that hold your Through the cross you've been forgiven You've accepted as you are oh, oh, So bring it all to the table It's nothing he ain't seen before For all your traps, all your worries and your burdens there's a Savior and He calls Bring it all oh, to the table
to the table It's nothing he ain't seen before For all your sin, all your sorrow and your sadness There's a Savior and he calls Bring it all to the table Let's sing that one more time To bring it all to the table It's nothing he ain't seen before For all your sin, all your sorrow and your sadness Is the Savior and he calls Bring it all to the table